Good morning. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us at, at uh, Mount Helena and being a part of our new two services. Uh, maybe you're listening online. I want to thank you for joining us as well and being a part of our community here. This morning, we're, I want to look at a unique story in the Bible. Four other guys who are on a unique journey together out of 2 Kings. If uh, you have something to turn to, an app, or uh, you brought your Bible today, you can start looking for that book, 2 Kings. We'll be in chapter 7 in a bit. But before we do that, I want to begin by saying I'm so grateful for the missions opportunities God has given me to go other places, see the kingdom, see God's kingdom in other places. I'm so grateful for it. I took my first missions trip 22 years ago to the nation of Brazil with Cowboys with a Mission. I was 20 years old when I went on my first missions trip. And maybe like some of you here in this room, as a kid growing up here in Montana, I hadn't even been to Glacier National Park or Yellowstone National Park. In fact, I had been to places like not just Brazil, but Belgium. And from the bottom of Wales, driving on the wrong side of the car, through England, up into Edinburgh, Scotland, and I had lived in Romania before I'd even been to Yellowstone National Park. That's kind of crazy. Really weird, actually. I had come back from living in Romania, and I had two of my best friends, my live-in mates, that we did kingdom life together. One was a brother who led the church, who was the pastor of the church, still is today. And I got to take my two best Romanian brothers to Yellowstone National Park while it was my first time going to Yellowstone. Yeah, it was a great experience. But I'd seen so many other places and got some other experiences that certainly most kids growing up in Montana, not in my childhood, but in my adulthood, had never experienced before. And I'm so grateful for it just because of God. Just because God expanded my life and my world. I really do wish... Everybody, every Christ follower could go on one trip somewhere and see his kingdom and one other part of the earth. It's not that big when you get out there. I think now I've been to 17 different countries and I'm so grateful. There's not one trip that I've been on that has not left an impact on me. I haven't been on one trip that hasn't changed my perspective on a number of things. And not only myself, but everybody who I've gone with and teams that I've been a part of, I see people be impacted and changed and see the kingdom somewhere besides just Helena, Montana. His kingdom's a lot bigger than this earth. And he's on mission. And he wants us to be on mission. But I've heard from more than one person the reasons for never even considering going on such an opportunity, never even doing something like that. 
before. They wouldn't say it this way, but they've said it another way. And it could be said this way. One of the most significant reasons they would never consider doing something like that, going somewhere else, they wouldn't say it like this, but it's a sense of a loss of control. Not knowing what to expect, what would happen, not being able to make the normal decisions that they make here. But there's that sense or that loss of control, a fear of not being able to make your own decisions with what's known. They're afraid of the loss of control in their own lives. I actually really believe one of the greatest mistakes in our life is to try to control the things that we absolutely don't even have control over. Control is a big issue for us. And it's a mistake to try and to control the things that we don't even have control over. And it's another mistake to relinquish the control that we have in things that we're definitely responsible for, that are our, our responsibility and we don't exercise it. We relinquish control by procrastinating, by neglecting, by leaving it up to someone else. I believe God has empowered his church. He's empowered us. He's empowered Mount Helena Community Church to have an impact, to have an effect, to implement change in Helena. He's empowered his church to not just be like everybody else, to not neglect, to not relinquish, not to over-control, but to walk with him, to have an impact in Helena. But not just Helena, to have an impact in Montana. And I'm thankful that it also includes places elsewhere, like regions beyond, our global efforts in other places. I'm glad that just his kingdom has taken me to so many other places on the earth. Otherwise, I may have never ventured out to see what East Helena looks like. Or Boulder, right? It wasn't quite that bad. But his kingdom has taken me other places. I love missions. I love getting out there. I say that missions has a real has a real let you know you're really alive kind of a feeling or association with it. Anita's father, Mike McKeegan, would would say that sort of phrase often. He would love to get out from away from in front of the TV and get up on top of Mount Helena. And because when you get on top of Mount Helena, the wind's blowing this time of year, and it's really cold. But it lets you know you're really alive. Another commercial break doesn't do that. Another TV program doesn't do that. You're barely alive. But when you're cold, when you're frigid, your bones hurt because it's so cold, we need to be reminded of such things. I'm motivating us to get ready for winter, right? But missions does that. I really know I'm alive. When I'm with a team and we're in another country, and I'm like, man, I'm alive. 
This is great. I've never experienced something like this before. I had no idea it would be like this. We all have preconceptions and notions of what it's going to be like, and then it's not. And it reminds me I'm alive. I'm out here. And I see people come alive. Not just people on our teams, but people that we're visiting and that we're serving and that we're lifting up and that we're imparting to and we're giving to them. And you see them come alive. And you hear people's stories. And you see them come alive. Some of the places I've been seem risky. Seem risky. Like there's this little place that isn't recognized as a country, but I definitely would call it another country. The place is called Transnistria. And it's a little area inside of the country Moldova. And the country Moldova is, is a recognized country, but this area inside of the country called Transnistria is nothing like the rest of the country. It's controlled by the Russian Red Army. And it has its own, I would say, powers and principalities. It has its own government that's not like the rest of the country. They don't interact with the rest of the country. These people don't come and go. They're in their own little space and area inside of another country. And they're not controlled by a democratic government. They're controlled by the Russian Red Army. And I remember going into Moldova, but I also really remember going into Transnistria. And man, I'm telling you, it was different. I saw things that I'd never seen before. I can't get into this morning, but I really did. I saw things that I had never seen before. I remember my friend Will and I, we were adventurous one morning. We knew we were taking some risks, but we were going to get out of the hotel and, and go to the market space. And we asked, is it safe for us to do that? Yeah, it was, and we were okay to go do that, but you still felt like it was a little risky. And I remember going into that market space, and it's just crammed. It's shoulder to shoulder with people. And I remember one particular time elbowing Will, and I was like, Will, look, I have never seen that before. Is, do you, is that what I think it is? And he's like, that's what you and I hope it's not. It is. I couldn't believe it. But in that moment, when he and I are the only two English speakers in the group and the crowd, we can't communicate with anybody. We're shoulder to shoulder. We're looking at each other like, wow, we are alive. We're not in America. We're not in Kansas anymore. We're in the middle of Transnistria. And before going on that trip, I had no idea such a place existed. And yet since, it's a place that's on my heart, like many other places around the globe, because it's on God's heart and it's his kingdom. Going to the Manila, Philippines. It's a relatively safe place, and it's not. It's a risk. I'm sorry to be so brash, but it's a place where more child molesters, it's a hub where more child molesters from around the globe go than most places on the face of the earth. It has some of the highest sex trafficking, highest labor trafficking comes out of there, goes to other parts of the whole world. And there's risk. You feel like there's some risk there. I felt very safe on our trip, and yet it felt risky. But never have I ever been asked to go to a country or to a place that would be so risky that when you get ready to enter the country, they ask you to fill out two special forms. And those two forms, one they call a proof of life form. What? 
a proof of life for them. And the other one is a proof of continued travel because they really don't want you staying in that country. These are countries that are known for uh, trafficking. There are countries that are known for kidnapping and hostage situations. They are countries that they want you to fill out this form, which the form will have three to five blank spaces on it. And they want you to fill out questions with information that they know you and those closest to you only really know the answers to. In other words, they really want to make sure their questions and information that your captors who may kidnap you and hold you hostage would never be able to find out the information to. I've never been to a country like that before and had to fill out forms. I'm just telling you and confessing, that's not a new bar for me. That's not a new bar for me right now. But at the same time, I can't help but, but think of some of the questions I would write down in my blank spaces. I know that they want you to be more serious than this, but a question that's crossed my mind is, like I've wanted to write down, what's the most notorious or well-known bucking bull that you've ever taken a hooking from? Wouldn't that translate well? That'd work well, wouldn't it? I think, I think my captors may look at me and go, what's a hooking? And a cowboy like me would say, well, it's, it's a cowboy term for butt-kicking by bull in hopes that it would diffuse the situation a little bit. Some tension would go away. You know what I'm saying? I think they're not looking for that kind of information somehow. I think they're looking for a little bit more mundane, everyday sorts of information. Do you want to know the answer to that? You do? Oh, great. I'm glad you asked. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks. That bull is trick-or-treat skull. He's going to come up on the screen here. Yep, yep. Notice those two baseball bat-shaped horns? I felt them pretty much all over my body. And I swear they were a lot bigger than that. Trick-or-treat, I thought it was appropriate for the month of October. Right? I don't think they're looking for that kind of information. But my wife knows the answer to that. The kids know the story. They would know the answer to that as well. They're looking for facts for a couple of reasons. They want you to fill out that proof of life form for a couple of purposes. If you were taken hostage, though they have already asked you to guarantee that you're traveling on, that you're not staying there forever, they don't have to keep watch for you. But if you became hostage, it would have, those questions would have two purposes. One purpose would be to really identify, is it you? And are you still really alive? Are you okay? If you answer these questions correctly, they know they're not making this up on their own. Right? But the other is to give you hope. That when you're asked that question that you wrote down, you'd have hope. That they know you're somewhere out there and they're going to find you. They're going to get you out of the situation that you're in. That's why those questions would be so important. I'd like to think my question would lighten up the situation and make for a good story. It's all about the story, right? It'd make for a good story. I want to ask you this morning, what's your proof of life? Those questions that they're looking for, 
might not be as much of a proof of life as they are a proof of existence. A proof of existence. In Luke chapter 24, Christ's followers after the crucifixion are looking not for a proof of life. They're looking for a proof of existence. That morning, they walked to the tomb of Jesus and they were looking for something. And they didn't even find a proof of existence, did they? The tomb was empty. They didn't find his body. What they actually found was a proof of life. His body wasn't there because he was risen, because he was alive. An angel met them there. And it says in Luke 24, 5, it says, Why do you look for the living among the dead? I think they were looking for something else. They weren't necessarily looking for the living Christ. They were looking for the dead Christ. And was his body still okay? But it wasn't there. There wasn't proof of existence. There was proof of life. I want to ask you again, what's your proof of life? You're living. You're not dead. You're here. What's your proof of life? What if you were to ask people nearest you, closest to you, what if you were to ask them, what are the three most powerful proofs of my life? What are the three most powerful proofs of my life? What would they say? What would be your answer to the proof that you're living? In 2 Kings chapter 7, we're going to go there now. In 2 Kings chapter 7, there are four guys who are unjust existing. They're not living. It's not just them. Nobody's living. In the group and the community that they're in, everybody's just existing. They're existing because there's a war. They're living in the time of a war. And not only is there a war, but the city has been besieged. It's been surrounded and it's been isolated. There's no coming and there's no going. Supplies are not coming in and going out. It's so bad that even before the city had been captured or besieged, even before there was a war, there was a famine. And it says it was a great famine. You might ask, how great a famine? Brace yourself. It was so bad in the time and the community that these four guys were on this journey in, people were eating the head of a donkey. And they were eating a baby. And these four guys were not just ordinary guys. These four guys were lepers. Maybe you're like, wow, Jason, that's pretty bad. My situation looks better already. Thanks for encouraging me. I'm done. Stop there. Great. We'll pick up there next week. No, we won't but it's bad. It's bad enough to be a leper with an incurable disease and be left to beg at the gate, but to beg for something that doesn't exist. There's not food in the city, much less outside the city, because the city is besieged because they're in a war, and people are isolated, and they're abandoned.
these four lepers whose skin is being eaten away by an incurable disease are four people who are abandoned by their own people to sit outside the gate of a walled city begging for food that does not exist just so they could keep on existing. We're going to pick up the story in verse 3. So we're in 2 Kings 7, verse 3. You can read with me in your version, or we have it on the screen. It says, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? I say, If we, or if we say, We'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. I think you could add the word surely. And we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. So despite the incurable disease that these guys have, and the lack of food, and the terrible situation that they're in, they still have some smarts and some wits to them. They have pretty clear minds. Clear enough to know we really have four options. Stay here and die because there's not enough. Go in there and they'll surely kill us because there's not enough for them either. And we're the least of them. And they don't have what we have. They don't want to contract what we have. So if we stay here, it's not good options. But if we leave here and get out there, they may put us out of our misery earlier than we expect or we may have a chance to live. Pretty poor options, wouldn't you say? And yet one of them says, deal. But we don't leave till daylight. We're not leaving till daylight. Let's go, let's do it. What have we got to lose at daylight? So we're at verse 5. It says, at dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, can you imagine the amount of courage that would take? Probably the most courageous option. We have no, you're saying of the four options, we got a 25% chance. Of the two options, we got a 50% chance, but one's much sooner than the rest. We're going to live or die. Let's go. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. What? For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses in a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Wow. Crazy. Then, verse 8, it says, The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and, hid, and hid them also. Wow. Crazy. More than they deserved. What a discovery, right? What a discovery. We're going to surrender and see what happens. Let's go. Mount up all the courage we have. We leave at dusk and we take off. And a part of me wonders the sequence of events. We don't know in detail, but I wonder at what point those four lepers left that gate, what was happening in that camp. They sound like they're happening, we call it 
about a 30-minute window, right? About a 30-minute window. But I'd really like to know the minute-to-minute, if not the second-to-second. Like, maybe when those four guys left, what was exactly happening there? Which came first? Did they leave? Or did the guys leave their posts of isolation and desperation first, which triggered something else? I'd like to know. But they discovered more than they could have imagined or asked for, right? All the More gold than they could carry, more food and wine than they've probably missed in the Great Famine. Horses are there, donkeys are there, tents are there. You'd kind of think they'd like make their own collection, which they started doing and hiding, getting their own supply worth, and then what? But it wasn't their greatest discovery. There's something bigger that's discovered. It was more than they expected because God was their greatest discovery. God was doing something. There's a hidden treasure in here as we read the rest of the story. God was doing something they couldn't do for themselves. He was working something bigger than they could have even imagined or asked for. This text isn't preserved for us to remember four lepers and their story or to hear the outcome of the war. It's for us to know the God that we follow, the God that we choose to follow. It's his story, not just their story. Despite their terrible situation, their terrible circumstances, they made a ridiculous decision to believe there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way to live or to die. I can't just sit here. I'm not going to be content with what I'm going to get here. I'm going to make the ridiculous decision to believe and to step out. And to their surprise, God was already acting on their behalf. In verse 9 it says, Then they said to each other, What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and and report this to the royal palace. They made this ridiculous decision. They found themselves in unimaginable circumstances. And they had, the again, the awareness, the smarts, the collectiveness in their minds, maybe not in their body when they're parched and hungry and desperate and aching and hurting and dying. They still have the clarity in mind to go, wait a second, we have a couple of options still. Hoard it to ourselves or tell others. This time they can't wait till daylight. If we wait till daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go and tell them now. We've got to report this to the palace. They can't wait for daylight. There's an urgency in them because now there's a duty in them. There's a responsibility. I don't want that kind of punishment. We have provision now, but I don't want to hold it for myself. We have to tell other people. We have to tell others about it. And what they shouted out echoed in the courts of the palace. In verse 10 it says, So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers, who you know they knew. They used to sit at those gates. They had a relationship with those people. 
I can only imagine the gatekeepers when they saw them coming. Look, there they are. They've been got, they're coming back. Where do you think they've been? Wait, what's that smirk on their face? Why is life so good for them now? Wait, I, I want I gotta stick around and hear this. I don't want to miss this. And yet, here's what here's what happens. They say, they told the gatekeepers, we went into the Aramean camp and no one was there. Not a sound of anyone. Yeah, right. You're going to have to tell me that again. Start over. I know you've only said two things, but you got to start over. What? There wasn't a sound of anyone. Only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. Almost unbelievable, right? Coming from four lepers. But the gatekeepers have to know these guys. Have to know what they're saying. There has to be some believability. It says, the gatekeepers then shouted the news. And it was reported within the palace. That news, that good news that they believed in. They said, we got, we, this is wrong. This is not right. We have to tell others. We have to share with other people. We have to tell the palace. So what happens then? In verse 12, it says, The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. It's a trap, if you will. They know we're starving. So they've left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out. And then we will take them alive and get into the city. The king had doubt, didn't he? Probably every reason to. But he wasn't believing the story that was coming from the four lepers. He didn't have the relationship that maybe the gatekeepers had. And he too was trying to use his smarts and his wisdom and go, wait a second. I can't go into the rest of the story for you. I really do want you to go home today, read 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 24, and read to the end of chapter 7. There's a before story and an after. It's not just a Paul Harvey read the rest of the story. You've got to read the whole story. It's a phenomenal, unique story in the middle of a journaling of the life of Elijah. There's this unique account, again, not for us to remember four lepers, but to remember the enormity, how big and how great our God is. It's God's story. The king's in doubt, and he's wondering, but he has an official who did not, who came up with a great idea. Go home and read the story. But let me finish with some thoughts, some of my thoughts of how this applies to us today. I think all of us can remember, not in the same way. I'm not saying we've experienced what they've experienced, but I think all of us can think of times and moments of desperation. Some of us can remember moments of survival. Some of us have survived some things like these guys have survived, maybe not in the same way, but still survival moments. Many of you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Many of us in this room have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ in a moment of maybe desperation, very likely desperation. And we decided to move beyond doubting and really test and see if this God was real. And I'm going to say for you, but correct me if I'm wrong, 
many of you in this room who have done that, who have given your life to Jesus Christ in a moment of survival or desperation, either way there was an invitation of Christ into your life and you discovered something way bigger than you thought you were entering, something so much bigger than what you thought you were entering. Despite your doubts, there was a lot more riches offered to you than you thought you were signing up for. Is that right? He's a great God. He's a big God. He's a generous and a gracious God. But likewise, I think all of us in this room really do know that all of us are better off moving beyond just ourselves, our own wants, our own needs, our own cares, our own sphere, our own collection, and embracing and thinking of and doing something about the needs of others. But some of the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, the greatest proof of life happens in some of those moments. I can't help but continue to think of the words of those one of those lepers saying, this is not right. This is not right. It's wisdom. He was wise, depleted, but wise and rich in wisdom saying, this is not right. I don't want this kind of punishment that would overtake us in the night, waiting for daylight. We got to go now. There's an urgency there. I hope you keep making choices to invest yourself in others, to share great news, no matter who doubts. There's doubters. In Acts chapter 17, you can turn there. In Acts chapter 17, Paul, who was not a disciple and follower of Christ while Christ was walking on the earth, but Paul knew people who were. And Paul found himself in the city of Athens, Greece, one day, and Luke's with him. Luke's recording the book of Acts many years later. And Paul and Luke didn't have this, what we have. They weren't retelling a story that is hundreds of years old that has been retold. He was recording it years later after he had been with Paul, standing on that mountaintop J.R. and Jen have been to in Athens, Greece, and Paul has found himself in the middle of big thinkers, if you will. These, this council of Athens, Greece, who mulls over and decides the kind of thinking that will be allowed, the kind of teaching, preaching, if you will, that's going to be allowed in the city and what is not. And he finds himself amongst this group of people, these big thinkers and big decision makers of the city, and Paul's giving his best to him. In his best effort, he's seen the altars around the city. He's seen all the different altars to all the different gods. Even an altar that says to the unknown God in case they miss something. And Paul's bringing attention to it. You absolutely have missed the one true God. And he's giving his best effort, best message to them. In verse 31, he's finishing saying this. He concludes his best effort saying this in verse 31. I'm saying God, but that's who the he is there. God has given proof of this 
to everyone by raising him from the dead. The proof isn't just that he lived. There's lots of people who believe Jesus lived, that he was born on some sort of Christmas experience that we celebrate. There's lots of people who don't doubt Jesus Christ gave his life, even possibly for something that he didn't deserve. And yet the proof is in his resurrection body, that it didn't exist anymore because he was alive and because he was risen. And yet many people today are still tempted to doubt, did that really happen? I can believe this part. I can believe the Christmas part. But in a belief sort of way that I would personally invite him into my life for the forgiveness of my sins and for the changed life and a transformed life like described in the Bible, a life of forgiveness, a life of mercy and grace and failings that will pick you back up and restore you, and send you on your way that leads to an eternal life? I don't know about all that. Because I believe something, because I confess something, because I invite him in. And like I say, some people are still satisfied with doubting. And yet, it's the proof. It's the proof that God sent his own son for you and I. It says then in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Some of them doubted. Seriously doubted. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And it says that that Paul left the council. He left those big thinkers on that hilltop. But next, in verse 34, it says some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Some of them did. For some of them, the resurrection that they heard about for the first time was something they'd never heard about before. There was no other God who was credited with that kind of thinking, with that kind of intention and that kind of purpose, and it was enough for them to believe. Some of you may be in a survival moment now of sorts. Some of you may be in a discovery moment now. And for some of you, like some of them on the hill, this Jesus thing, though you've heard much more than they had ever heard that day, some of it may make more sense than it ever has before. And I want to help jolt you out of a sort of contentment that would be okay with just continuing to doubt rather than to engage God. I want to encourage you, engage the real God today in relationship. Talk with him. Commune with him. Open up his word. This is a wild story, but the Bible's loaded with them, and they all have everything to do with us today. They're not old and archaic, outdated. They have complete relevance to us today, and they're God's heart for us today. Some of you may be in a surrender moment. Some of you may be in a discovery moment. And some of you, no doubt, are in a doubting moment. I want to encourage you at the end of our service to pray with someone. There will be a prayer team available right over here to pray with you. Talk with someone. Share with someone what you're thinking, what maybe this has stirred inside of you. And share it with God. What do you really believe? What's proof of your life? What's the proof of your life? 
Not that you exist. Not that you are alive. But that you have life. The life of Jesus Christ. And you, and lastly, the last thing that just continues to be in me throughout this story is what those lepers said. This is not right. It may not be in us. But that phrase, there's urgency in those lepers. And I want to say that phrase describes our Heavenly Father, does it not? It describes, it no doubt is a description of the kingdom. This isn't right. I've got to do something. I can't wait till daylight. I've got to do something now. I want to encourage you. Share Christ. Share Christ. Share your sphere. Share your relationship. Share your goods. Share Christ with people. And there'll be people who doubt. But there'll be some who don't doubt. There'll be some who believe you like they believed Paul. And it has everything to do with the proof of life that Christ has put inside of you. God's doing some great things with us here at Mount Helena. I'm so grateful that we're offering these two services. And yet I know there's an urgency in Christ who wants to expand and do greater things with us. Amen?